Welcome, everybody, to Bible study. We're concluding our series entitled Living from the New Heart, part 10. It's amazing how fast time goes. Ten weeks ago we started, and now here we are concluding this incredible series. God has invited us to live from the new heart. Let me take a moment to recap the entire series. We started by talking about trusting, not trying. We said that everybody is in search of perfection. Everybody wants to be at perfect peace, perfect rest. Everybody wants the perfect marriage, the perfect job. Everybody wants the perfect home, the perfect Christmas. Whatever it is, we're always searching for the best. We want the best. I think that's because we're made in the image of God who is perfect. And we always strive for perfection. The problem is sin has entered the world and death and disease and destruction through sin. And so we live in this fallen world. And so though we search for perfection, it's very difficult for us to find it in and of ourselves. In fact, we can't. We can only find it in God. That's why through belief, we can receive a perfect heart. Only through belief, not through works, but through belief. Having this new heart produces a new and perfect self that is capable of enduring the perfect storm, temptation, and trouble. We can go through temptation, we can go through trouble with this new heart because it is safe and secure and nothing will change that the believer's new self body soul and spirit is the perfect fit for god to live in and he lives in that place permanently living at the center of god's grace forgiveness and goodness is the perfect atmosphere for growth and bearing fruit to God. And finally, last week, we talked about how God, the author of the new covenant, is perfectly good. In and of himself, he is perfectly good. It's not just the gospel that's good. It's not just the new covenant of grace that is good. The author himself is good and perfectly good and always good to us. He's not as good to us as we are to him. He is perfectly good to us. And nothing we do changes that. Things that we do change the level of experience, the amount that we experience his goodness, but he is always good toward us. His face is always toward us. His countenance always upon us. So that's the series in a nutshell, and what a series it's been, what a journey we've been on together. I can't imagine a gospel message any better than what we've been talking about for the last 10 weeks. I join with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 and 24 when he said this, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, 
I want to finish the race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here Paul is saying, everything I'm enduring, all the hardships, all the trials, all the persecutions, none of these things bother me. None of them move me. I don't even count my life dear to me. The only thing that matters is that I run the race and I finish the race and I accomplish the ministry that I received, which is to preach the gospel. That's not just for the great Apostle Paul or for pastors in pulpits. That's for every one of us. We've all received the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. It's the greatest work that we can do. It's the only work that has true eternal significance, true eternal consequence. And the only thing that we can take to heaven with us are the people that we preach the gospel to who in faith receive it. You can't take your money, you can't take your boat, you can't take anything else with you. Only those that you've preached the gospel to, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, and who have received it in faith. Do you know that you're perfect just the way you are? Now, that's a message that the world shares. The world preaches that message all the time. It's not the same message. That's not what I'm saying tonight. I'm using the same words, but they mean something completely different. The world says you're perfect just the way you are, in your sin, with your desperately wicked heart that's deceitful above all. That's what the world's saying. You're good. Actually, you're perfect just the way you are. You be you. Be your true, authentic, and autonomous self. Be true to you. That's what the world is saying. It's a lie from the enemy. Now, the Bible says the same thing, but it means something completely different. The Bible says that now that we have believed, now that we have been perfected by the one who was himself perfected by obedience to the Father, now that we have been perfected by him, we are perfect body, soul, and spirit just the way we are. Even though we continue to fall short, even though we continue to struggle in many ways, even though we are still in this body of affliction, we are perfect the way we are. We are exactly where God has intended us to be. We are living at the center of his grace, forgiveness, and goodness. And the sooner we realize that, and the more we rest in that, the better off we'll be. But you are perfect just the way you are. That doesn't mean God's not working to conform you. He's doing that, and he's patiently doing it. He will get you to where he has uh, determined you will be before you see Jesus. We know not yet what we will be. 
but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. That means we're not there yet, but we will be one day. But you're perfect right now just the way you are. You're perfect for God. He's made you holy. He sanctified you. He set you apart for his purpose. Sometimes we confuse the word sanctification with uh, confirmation or transformation. God is conforming you and transforming you. And he can do that because he sanctified you. The process is the conformation, the transformation. The reality is that you have been sanctified, set apart for purpose. So God takes you from dead in trespasses and sins, and he sanctifies you. He sets you apart. He brings you over here. And he says, now I'm going to put you on the process of confirmation, transformation, by the renewing of your mind to the image of my son. But you've been sanctified, set apart for God's purpose. And you're perfect just the way you are. Don't let Satan lie to you and tell you everyone else is good but you, that you've still got some work to do. No, you were perfected, Hebrews tells us, by the one who was perfected by obedience. So now the pressure's off. If you're perfect just the way you are, there's no more pressure to perform. God's message is one of love and acceptance and safety. You know that hymn we like to sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. We say blessed assurance because the assurance does not come from us. It comes from God. It is blessed. It is divine. It is holy. It comes from him. It's his promise. We have safety, confidence, and assurance that comes from him and not from us. Because God said that he loves us and accepts us and that nothing would separate us from that love. So now the pressure's off. We don't have to perform. Now we can work. Now we can do. Now we can enjoy. Now we can rest, knowing that there's no pressure to perform. Our assurance comes from knowing, not doing. Look at 1 John 5.13. This is a very familiar passage to us, but I want to turn there just so we can get some context. John 5, 1 John 5.13. Uh, what does John say? He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And look at this. That you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. There's no requirement here. There's no list of dues. The only thing that John in this whole letter wants anyone to do is believe. The one commandment that he keeps talking about is this new commandment, to believe on Jesus and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the only thing you got to do. If you believe, verse 13, you can know that you have eternal life. And he writes to us so that we would continue to believe. What's the ongoing work of the believer? To keep believing. That's the ongoing work. The ongoing work of God in the life of the believer is to transform us and to conform us. That's his work. 
We are obedient in that. We are complicit in that. But it's his work. Our work is to keep believing. That's why John says in the next uh, letter he writes, 2 John 9, he said, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So how do you know if you have God? Do you still believe? And you have him. Yeah, but I struggle with sin and I keep messing up. Yeah, same with all of us. But do you still believe? If the answer is yes, then you have God. You don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder. Look at 1 John 5, 18 to 20. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God uh, keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true, that we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And then he says, keep yourself from idols. The pressure's off. Our assurance doesn't come from doing. It comes from knowing. It comes from continued belief. And even when it comes to our knowing, when it comes to our understanding of things like God's mercy and grace, you don't have to get it. You don't have to know it all. You can apprehend it, but not comprehend it. What do I mean by that? To apprehend something means to be able to talk about it and interact with it. But to comprehend something means to truly and fully understand it. Things like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, or certain doctrines like the doctrine of predestination. They can be difficult to understand. We can talk about them and we can even believe them without fully understanding them. What's amazing about that is God's truth is true no matter what. It's already true. Whatever your understanding is or isn't, whatever you've experienced or haven't experienced, whatever you've felt or haven't felt, it doesn't change the fact that God's word is true. He's unchangeable. And you can put your trust in that and that alone. You can trust God that he is true even though you don't fully understand everything. So again, the pressure's off. You don't have to live under this pressure to perform and you don't have to live under this pressure to know it all. God is true. God is perfect. Whether you understand it or get it or not. Look at Psalm 119, 89 to 90. This is true of your God. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You established the earth and it abides 
that's pretty, that's pretty good. I can get that. I can get behind that. God, your word is settled in heaven. I might not understand everything about it, but I believe that it's settled. It's not changing. You said it, and I believe it. And you are faithful throughout all generations. You're sovereign over the earth. This earth is still here because you're holding it together. You know that, that Sunday school song, he's got the whole world in his hands? If God stopped holding this world together, we'd fall apart. We'd hurtle off into oblivion. But God holds it together. I believe that. And I hope that you do too. It takes the pressure off. And then go, go to the back of the book. Go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. David the psalmist is talking about the eternal nature of God. And then those, well, Jesus talks about this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. This is what he calls himself. He says, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That's who we serve. That's who's perfected us. The amen, the let it be so. The one who accomplishes the will of the Father. The faithful and true witness. The one who was before creation. You don't have to understand all the, the nuances of the, the gospel or certain doctrines. You can just put your faith and trust in the Lord. And that he's got it. And that he's true no matter what. So don't live under any pressure as the perfect you. Now, if you're going to live this way, you can expect opposition. Sorry, I don't have better news for you. But if you're going to live this way, if you're going to live from the new heart, you can expect lots of opposition. Not everyone is a fan of this message. You'd think they would be. It's really good news. But not everyone is a fan of this message. Many people find this message generic and uninspiring. They see the gospel as something to graduate from. I used to feel that way. I used to think, okay, the gospel gets me in the door, and then I graduate from it. I don't need to hear it again, over and over. I want to go on to deeper things and higher things and wider things. There are other things besides Jesus and the gospel. But apart from Jesus and the gospel, there's nothing else worth knowing. It's everything. It's the centerpiece of the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. Paul, when he planted this church in Corinth, he, um, he sought to do one thing, and that is preach Christ and him crucified. So he, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, uh, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. See, there's the opposition. You can expect opposition if you're going to preach the gospel and live from your new heart. 
because people are going to call you foolish. People are going to be offended by it. But verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then turn over a page to chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says to them, For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He says in the previous verse, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I came with a simple message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's this illustration I heard back in Bible college and it's stuck with me. It's a really interesting allegory or image. Um, there was a sign that was placed over the door of a church when it was dedicated, emblazoned in bronze. It said, we preach Christ and him crucified. Someone had a great idea to plant some crawling ivy in front of the church, and over the years, the ivy crawled up around the door and and started to cover over the sign a little bit, and the first word it covered over was the word crucified. And so the sign above the door said, we preach Christ. You can preach Christ all you want, but if you don't preach his death and resurrection, you're not preaching the gospel. A lot of churches just like to preach about the stuff Jesus said some of it which doesn't even apply to them. It applies to the Old Covenant. They like to preach Jesus, the, the good teacher. And then the ivy continued to grow. And it grew over the word Christ. And the sign above the door read, we preach. And there's a lot of churches that just preach. But there's no power in that preaching. Because they don't preach Christ and him crucified. See, if you don't preach Christ and him crucified, you are literally just preaching foolishness. Because only Christ and him crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ and him crucified is the power of God and the salvation, Romans chapter 1 says. And so let us resolve to always preach Christ and him crucified. And yes, there is more to know. But if I'm going to resolve to know one thing among you as your pastor, it's to know that. That's my resolve in my family, to know one thing among them. Christ and him crucified. Jesus only. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. So you can't graduate from this gospel. You can spend your whole life exploring it growing in it, loving it, celebrating it. Others see the, the grace message as a license to sin. We've talked lots about that over the weeks. People who see the grace message as a license to sin often forget that they're sinning just fine without a license. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All have sinned. And even those who are in Christ, who are new creations, who have a new heart, will still sin. 
No one will be sinless on this side of eternity, but those who are obedient to Christ will sin less as they obey grace. You see, grace is that which teaches us to say no to sin. It doesn't give us license to sin. It teaches us to say no, Titus 2.13. The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no. We don't need less grace. We need more grace. If you want to live a victorious Christian life, say yes to grace. Say, God, I need more grace. We've often thought that needing God's grace is some sort of admission of weakness, that we couldn't do it, and so we had to rely on his grace. Obviously, obviously you couldn't do it. No one can. Only by grace can we be saved, and only by grace can we be kept. The gospel is more than just forgiveness and heaven. If that's all it was, it would still be incredible news. The incredible news, though, is that God has right now infused us with righteousness in order that we might live an abundant life here and now and on into eternity. You know this familiar passage, John 10 and 10. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly the thief comes to steal kill and destroy right now and so in that same context and in that same tense Jesus says I have come that you may have life right now yes Jesus promises us everlasting life after death that's what he said to Lazarus's sisters. I am the resurrection and the life. Though he die, uh, he who believes in me uh, shall have everlasting life. And though he die, yet shall he live. This is true. But God also gives us his eternal life right now. The only way we can have eternal life is if we have Christ's life. We're not eternal. We have a beginning. That which is eternal has no beginning and no end. That's why Jesus says, I'm the faithful witness before creation, before time began. There I was. There I am. Hello. Okay. Where was I? Yeah. So Jesus says, before time began, there I am. He is the eternal one. He has no beginning and no end. For us to have eternal life means that we have to has, have his life. That's why Colossians says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, he is our life right now. It is no longer I who live, but who? Christ who lives in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. If you want to have hope of heaven, you need to have Christ in you now, living in you now. So the gospel is more than just forgiveness and heaven after death. We are infused with righteousness in order to live an abundant life right now. Look at John 17, 6. Skip ahead a few pages. 
John 17, 6, this is Jesus' famous prayer for his disciples. And not just the 12, but all who would be his disciples. So Jesus prayed for you, and he prayed for me. And he says this, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. So we are kept in Christ. God has given us to him. Uh, God gave us to Christ, and he keeps us. We are in him, and what a wonderful hope that is. Go ahead to uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Let's read that together. Just to prove this point a little further. Romans 5, 17. Look at this. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and receive of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. You see, we've been given righteousness, infused with righteousness. Righteousness has been imputed to us. We have it. It's to our credit. And because we have it, we will reign in life through Christ. Not just in the life to come, but right now. You see, right now, the first part of that verse is true. Through Adam's offense, sin and death reign in the world. It's all around us. But through Christ's obedience, we receive the gift of righteousness to reign in life through that one. And then let's go ahead there to 1 John 5. I know we were just there, but let's go back there. 1 John 5, 11 to 12. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is his son. Who, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. That phrase, has life or have life, in the original language is present tense. If you have the son now, then you have life now. And of course, we know that if we have the Son now, we can be assured that we will have him in the life to come in heaven. But this message is a stumbling block, a rock of offense. I said it on Sunday. This message is the most scandalous message in the Bible, this message of the gospel of grace. It offends the sensibilities of the carnal and so it's an offensive message. If you want to make a few enemies, start preaching the gospel. Nobody wants to make enemies. We don't set out to do that. But it's the natural consequence of preaching the gospel. There will be opposition. But greater is he who's in us. All right. I know we have only got a few minutes left, but we can get through this last page, I promise. All right. So that next heading, dependent by design. The perfect you does not have the pressure to perform. The perfect you will experience opposition. 
but the perfect you can depend on Christ. That's how he designed it. You don't have to depend on you. You can depend on Christ. We are new-hearted and wonderfully dependent by nature. The beauty of this design gets buried when we accept the message that we should do more and be more. If you believe that message and you get on that treadmill of doing more and being more, then you will lose the beauty of this designed dependence. You'll stop depending on Christ and start depending on yourself. And once you start depending on yourself, you'll get on this treadmill of constantly letting yourself down. This is the truth. Everything that needs to be done is finished and everything that we need to be is complete in Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. Everything that needs to be done is finished. It was finished the moment when Christ hanging on the cross pronounced those words, it is finished. That's what needed to be done. An offering needed to be put forward to satisfy God's wrath. Jesus offered himself in your place and he finished the work. Now everything that you need to be is also complete in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is the gift of God. So again, you're not depending on yourself. You're depending on someone, but it's not you. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When you break down this verse in its original language, the way that you can interpret it, and this is a good interpretation, but the way that you can interpret and understand it is we are created in Christ, we are made for good works. They were prepared in advance and God is the one who carries them out through us. We're not dependent on ourselves in any way to do this. We are willing participants. We are a conscious choice to say yes to the Lord. Absolutely. And we can say no as well. We can either set our minds on the things above or the things below. Setting our mind on the things above has eternal consequence. Setting our mind on the things below doesn't matter. Those things are just temporary. They will pass away. But Christ is the one that carries them out in us. Our role is simply to let it out. It's in us, but it's only coming out if we let it. Go over a couple of pages to Philippians chapter 2. 12 and 13, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, look at this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's stop there for a moment. A lot of people like to take that verse, and especially the last sentence in that verse, 
take it out and put it on an island and make it say what they want. And one of the main things that people like to make that verse say is that you can customize your salvation, that you can personalize it to your tastes. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You can't customize salvation. You can't personalize it. There's only one true gospel. Anything and everything else is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul explains what he means in the next verse. Keep reading. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So couple that with the previous verse we read there in Ephesians chapter 2. We are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should do them. And then he says to the Philippians, work it out, let it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with honor and respect, with reverence, because it's actually God working in you to both will, to want, and to do. That's why I said in Ephesians, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is the one that's accomplishing it. And the same in Philippians chapter 2. God is working in us to will and to act. We have to let it out though. We have to work out that which has been worked in us. That means that we are receivers, not producers. We receive these gifts of God's grace. We don't produce them in and of ourselves. We are reflectors, not the sources of light. We are mirrors. We reflect the light that shines on us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. When he says, let your light shine, he is not suggesting that we are the source of any light. That let your light shine, that word shine has to do with reflecting. Let my light reflect off of you so that people could see that goodness and praise me, the source of that light. God designed us to be dependent on him and we can depend on him. He'll never fail us. So the perfect you doesn't have any pressure to perform. The perfect you will experience opposition. The perfect you is dependent by design. And the perfect you is loved with a great love. Have you seen how big God's love is for you? Have you ever experienced that revelation? Have you ever experienced it? That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, that they would experience it. Ephesians 3, 18 to 19. Let's start at verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you received that revelation yet? 
Have you received it? Do you know how big God's love is for you? Well, the answer is you can't actually know because the Bible says that it passes knowledge. It's so big that you can't understand it. Now that's an amazing love. God loves you so much that he rejoices and celebrates over you every day. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you and he is mighty to save. He rejoices over you with singing and he quiets us with his love. That's the kind of love God has for us. A love that causes us to break out in song. Do you know God actually sings love songs over you? And when the world is so chaotic and noisy, he quiets you with that self-same love? That love is not transactional. There's no if attached to his love. You have nothing to prove. All that you have to do to receive this unconditional love is have faith. The perfect you. All of this to say tonight that your new self is right and good. It's perfect. It's that way because of your new birth, not your behavior. Remember Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's all about being born again. When you're born again, that new self, that perfect you, is right and good. You're justified before God, just as if you'd never sinned. And you're good. Not in and of yourself, but because He is good and He is in you. It's not because of your behavior. It's because of your new birth. The new perfect self is good-hearted and good-spirited. Even your soul and your body are holy and acceptable to God. God is for you, not against you. And he is for all of you. God's not just for your heart. He's for all of you. Body, soul, and spirit. He loves every part of you. He was involved in what happened in your mother's womb. He knit you together. He saw you in that secret place. He loves you, created you in his image. So here's the conclusion, quickly. Living from the new heart means the pressure's off. You can finally stop trying and start trusting. Living from the new heart means that others are going to try to discourage you. They're going to tell you you got to do something. They're going to tell you you got to experience something. They're going to tell you that you have to go somewhere. None of that's true. Not everyone's going to share your enthusiasm for the gospel. Living as the perfect self means that you are living dependent on God all the time. There's never a moment when you're expected to do something or be something on your own, ever. Living from the new heart means that we are simply reflectors of God's light. As Jesus put it, we are the branches. 
and we grow what the vine produces. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Living from the new heart means that we live under God's unconditional love. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. His love endures forever. We don't have to prove our love for God. He has proven his love for us. We can spend the rest of our days enjoying and celebrating this wonderful truth, knowing that we are in right standing with God because we have been born again. Our name is written down with indelible ink, and our inheritance is kept imperishable and undefiled in heaven, and it does not fade. That is something to get excited about. That's a perfect gospel.